Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Ann Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Protect Your Energy, Ann and I are joined by Christiana Zenner, Associate Professor of Theology, Science, and Ethics in the Department of Theology and Affiliated Faculty in Environmental Studies at Fordham University. Since January, she has been Associate Chair for Undergraduate Education in Theology at Fordham College Lincoln Center. Christiana shares her thoughts about the importance of rituals, the disparate impacts of the current crisis, and the ways communication technologies can be leveraged to pursue social and environmental justice. We thought we'd reach out to an expert in rituals just to get your sense of the importance of them and why what happens in the classroom is only a very narrow slice of the university experience. You know, this semester I'm teaching two classes, and in both cases, my students are predominantly seniors. This is a new phenomenon for me. Standardly, I teach many more fresh people than I do upper class people. But it's been an interesting time to have so many seniors and some juniors in my classes and to walk with them through this period of displacement, of shift to online pedagogy, and of the gradually accruing losses that they are experiencing as a result of the indefinite postponement of graduation and leaving the dorms for those who were residing on campus, then being informed that they couldn't return to them. There are these moments of loss and grief in what they had perhaps only tacitly experienced as expectations of what their senior year would look like or what the ritual closure of that would look like. And so we've been having a series of conversations in different ways in those classes about what it might look like for us to commemorate those instances if we're not together in person. And those are, you know, those ceremonial, highly ritualized, highly performative events with faculty wearing these hilarious hats and all the students in their big black, highly form-fitting robes, uh, all of us um, in in the hot sun. There's often a lot of um, pomp and circumstance to it, but there's also something that students are feeling a real substantial loss about. And as, as one student said to me, you know, I've been working so hard. I want my parents to see me walk across that stage. I want to get my diploma. And so I know that Fordham is doing everything it can to make that possible in this remote reality. But it, it the question of graduation in some ways, I think almost makes into a visible macrocosm for people who are not in university contexts what teachers are experiencing and students are experiencing in the rapid move to online teaching in a weekly context. You know, I I have studied and thought about ritual a lot in terms of anthropological and religious studies theories of ritual and how they shape social worlds that we inhabit, how they contribute to our understanding of cosmic orders, especially obviously if we're talking about theology or if we're talking about religious studies. But a lot of what I've been thinking about right now is how rituals, and not necessarily formal ones, I'm thinking especially of informal rituals, constitute our days and help to mediate our expectations, help to orient ourselves in space and time and direction, help to set aside affective um, possibilities 
so in particular, I'm thinking about what happens when, for example, we used to meet in person and we used to do certain things at the beginning of class when we met in person and we can't do those anymore. You know, Clifford Geertz, this esteemed anthropologist of the late, mid to late 20th century, in his famous essay, Religion as a Cultural System, spoke primarily about formalized rituals and performances that had to do with religious and cultural spaces and where people would go through an experience that involved community and bodily action and also a kind of affective and aesthetic orientation towards an event. And then they would take that experience, that knowledge, and bring it into daily life in certain ways. And in that way, it would help to constitute the world that we inhabit. In the 90s, 1990s and early 2000s, scholars of religion and some anthropologists started thinking a lot more about ritual in what I call quotidian, more quotidian ways. So what happens when we start thinking about rituals not only as big performative moments that are collective in nature, but are ways that humans respond to different kinds of contexts. And this can be conscious or not conscious. I'm thinking here especially of a Canadian theorist, Ron Grimes. I'm thinking of the late US theorist, Catherine Bell, who wrote a classic called Ritual Theory, Ritual Practice. And they were interested not only in those formal functions that rituals serve in religious contexts, but also the emergent forms of social and sometimes individual action that help people to create worlds of meaning and reliability. And as I said, you know, orient us in space and time and direction with physical and affective touchstones. So one of the terms that scholars have given to this is ritualization, the formation of practices that often becomes intentional. And it's, you know, it, we can maybe think of this on a spectrum. We've got routines, we've got habits, and then somehow some of those routines and habits can become imbued with something that is a little bit distinctive, perhaps more mindful, perhaps more intentional, perhaps it sets aside, for example, in the classroom, it's a moment or a practice that is regularized and becomes intentional in such a way that it creates a possibility of communicative space and exploration of ideas. I call this the ceremonial putting away of the cell phones. <laughs> okay, exactly. <laughs> Something I've been doing since I started at Fordham in 2011, and it's called the attendance quiz, which is really a terrible name because it's actually not a quiz. They're not graded, but it's called an attendance quiz because I really loathe taking attendance. It's it's a necessary part when you're teaching fresh people especially, but it's not a really fun part of class. And so what I started doing early on, uh, my first semester really, and I've done it every semester since, is to pick a piece of music, often one that has some connection to the course material or theme for the day, write a question on the whiteboard that relates to the material for the day and have students come in, sit down, take out a piece of paper or their appropriate uh, communicative device, not a cell phone, and brainstorm while we listen to this music, their response to this question. They put their name on it, that's the attendance part, and they hand it in to me. And that then gives me a sense, it gives me a chance to evaluate how they're doing in terms of grasping the material or processing higher order analyses of that material. But it also gives them a chance to come into class to set aside whatever other topics, <laughs> there are many, they're students, they're taking four to five classes, they're working, um, to set aside for a moment uh, whatever personal realities and dramas may be impinging and to say, here we are, let's orient ourselves to this and then we'll get going. 
so that's what I would give an example of as, as my most explicit ritualized moment that creates a, a space for our class conversation. And one of the things that has fascinated me about my personal transition to online pedagogy is that I have stopped doing that. Now, granted, I'm not teaching fresh people. And so I was doing it less frequently with my seniors, but I was still doing it pretty regularly, especially in one of my classes. And so I started thinking to myself, well, why have I stopped doing this? And I realized it was because I wanted the chance to greet and recognize every person as they came into the Zoom meeting, into the call, to establish a kind of contact that may have been possible with a glance or a wave, but over Zoom or remote media is only possible when you say something explicitly and with intention. And so that has now been become the greeting ritual is, you know, hi, Stephen. Hey, Anne, welcome. Great to see you guys. And it's, you know, it's not the same as having student led banter in the classroom before class begins in person, but it casualizes and welcomes at the same time in a way that um, that I have found helpful. I think what you're saying is that rituals can help to create community and also reduce ambiguity in this new space that we're trying to figure out. Rituals can be a way of organizing and helping students make sense of and marking the ways in which we'll move through a dynamic space or set of ideas is, is really important. It's important for teachers, even if we haven't thought about the theory behind it. I think a lot of really great teachers do this thing innately anyway, or intuitively. But I think in this pandemic moment, it's becoming very obvious to each of us about how the simple routines that previously consti constituted our days before physical distancing have been disrupted and how much we relied on certain types of encounters or certain moments to get a cup of tea, to go to the water cooler, to run into someone in the hallway, to take these 10 minutes to do this kind of task. <laughs> There's a lot that I think many of us are seeing about the ways that our days were constituted before the pandemic and our important public health responses to it. And then there's the question of how we reconstitute and reclaim the kind of intellectual and affective space that makes our days feel meaningful and reliable and trustworthy in a time of great uncertainty. So one of the things that's so interesting what you're saying about ritual and one of the things that it made me think about is years ago I read this book I think by Paul Connerton that was about how our physical placement in a room, our posture immediately sends signals about power. You know, it doesn't really matter. It's not that the king always gets the big chair. It's that you see, if there's only one person standing, you know that's the teacher, the leader, the minister. If there's only one person sitting, you know that's the CEO, the teacher, the leader, the minister. Even though I think you and I probably share, all three of us probably share a desire for a really egalitarian classroom, there's not a lot of question when people walk into my room that I'm the teacher. I mean, it's partly because I'm the only person in my 50s in the room, but it's also because, you know, even when we're all sitting in a circle, there's a way in which I'm taking up more space. I have more notes. I have more gear. I'm the one with the big stack of papers that I've just collected or that I'm just about to return, right? And one of the things that's strange in an online situation is our 
faces are all exactly the same size. That could be a good thing for egalitarian teaching. I'm reminded of what you said, and I think perhaps the first episode that you and Steve launched about how in your first Zoom meeting, you found somewhat to your surprise that the students just wanted you to be the center. They wanted to hear you talk. They wanted that familiarity and the kind of discourse that comes from someone who is in charge and trustworthy, helping to navigate and create an intellectual world. And perhaps, you know, there are lots of reasons for that, but I think that it is important to think about how the default power that we as faculty have because of perhaps differentials in knowledge, certainly differentials in, in years of teaching experience, but how that can be when used well, a really important way of communicating with students that even in times of great transition, some things do remain constant and that we are there for them, even if we don't have the full panoply of resources to offer at, at every time. When I think about you, I think about your work on water and justice and the kind of ethics of how resources get spread and how we think about the uneven way in which things like climate change or things like a global pandemic affect people depending on their circumstances. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that in the context of the um, coronavirus. So my interest in ritual is related, of course, to my scholarly work in theology and religious studies, but the lion's share of the work that I have done is on questions of freshwater access, depletion, distribution, the justice, and as you say, and the resource allocation, particularly as we've seen in the U.S. in recent years, in situations of highly racialized and uneven access to infrastructure and um, water is a case in point. So we can think of Flint, we can think of Standing Rock, lots of examples. You know, I think that, that speaking at a New York City level, about pandemics and lack of equity and the problems of differential racialized outcomes. We're seeing that people who live in communities that are predominantly African-American, to some degree Latino, in other words, non-white populations, tend to be affected in higher proportions than more affluent tending white populations. And so the, I think the statistic from yesterday was something along the lines of 30% of people in New York who are dying from coronavirus are African-American, but African-Americans represent about 13% of the population. Why is that? And there's a long literature in medical anthropology and epidemiology and public health and bioethics looking at uneven health outcomes and burdens of chronic illness such as diabetes heart disease and so forth, and the ways in which lives of that are sometimes characterized by chronic poverty and exclusion and unfair government policies, that those bear health effects. And um, a lot of these tendencies that we are seeing now revealed to us as United States residents in this pandemic are also tendencies that uh, apply to things like water, climate change, bearing communities who bear the most extreme effects of those. I'm thinking, though, in this particular moment about something that Rafael Zapata 
said in his interview with you guys, which was that in this pandemic, we're seeing accentuated vulnerabilities, meaning that folks who were already in conditions of some kind of precarity, some kind of potential risk or encountering some kind of institutional or other barrier, whether to access or to resources or what have you, um, that those vulnerabilities are accentuated. Or in the language that I have tended to use in my work, that these kinds of situations tend to amplify realities that were already in place. And often they make them visible to people who weren't already experiencing them. Um, and so, you know, we can think about that in terms of resource access. We can think about that in terms of mental health as well. So for students or faculty or community members in and beyond the university, um, what we are seeing more generally are the amplification of patterns and realities that were already there, but perhaps not necessarily quite as visible. What are the things that we can do in response to this? How do we organize this conversation so that it includes reliable resources and up-to-date information and important social, political, ethical analyses of the moment without overly intellectualizing it so that it is dissociated from the realities that all of us are living through. I'm wondering if, as you think uh, about how to be in this moment, if there's a teacher from your past who's emerged as someone you think back on with special fondness. By and large, the teachers who stand out for me are the ones who showed me how to be quirky and rigorous and female and strong. And my advisor, Margaret Farley, is a fantastic human. I would say, though, that the one about whom I've been thinking the most in this particular moment is now Dean at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Dean Emily Towns, a womanist theological and social ethicist who's worked on a range of topics pertaining to race and theology and an unjust society, including health disparities. And I was a teaching assistant for her uh, in a number of classes. And she is the person from whom I adapted uh, what I was mentioning earlier as the attendance quiz to music. She's very inspiring pedagogically in a subtle and consistent way. And before I was going to give my first presentation at the, you know, 9,000 person meeting of religious studies folks in our guild, I was nervous. And I said to her, I would love some advice. What you know, would you be willing to share with me any advice you have on presenting on high octane topics to an audience of strangers who are scholars? And she said she offered a number of reflections. And the one that has stuck with me with which she began and ended was only three words, protect your energy. There are so many ways to read and hear that advice. I have thought of it many times in the intervening years. I tend to be someone who feels the pulse of energy of 9,000 scholars as fairly depleting in those kinds of conference settings. You know, in New York City, when it's functioning in its standard thrum, there can be all kinds of energies afoot to pick up on and, and lean into. But I think that in this particular moment, I'm really thinking about how to both protect 
and share my energy where it's warranted because this is at least for a while the new normal this is not something that we can go all out and work every day through the weekend and parent and think that well i'll just rest when when it's over because who knows when that will be so you mentioned earlier standing rock what i think about that is the collective action that was formed in, in protest in the absence of the ability to gather in groups for social justice what what do people do have you is this something you've thought about or is it in your area of of research my book is called just water and it came out in its first edition in 2014 second edition 2018 and the second edition has a chapter on standing rock one of the things that has been really important and interesting in water activism whether it is against water privatization efforts in, say, Bolivia at the turn of the 1999 to 2000 era, or whether pertaining to Standing Rock in about 2016, is that the, the mode of digital communication and geographically dispersed solidarity through internet proximity has been vital. So on the one hand, in sending out information about what's going on, so that a lot of people were able to become aware of what was going on at Standing Rock, but in another, receiving forms of solidarity that are mediated by websites, by digital activist groups, by you know GoFundMe campaigns. And so I think that in, in many ways, as perhaps you're suggesting, Steve, there are lessons we can learn from activist communities who have formed networks of solidarity around the world and certainly in the United States using the kinds of technologies that um, that we're talking about. And so there's there's a lot of hope, I think, to be gleaned from that because it allows for communication and brainstorming and asynchronous support as well as in-person support. And you know, one of um, one of the things that is really moving about the Standing Rock moment in US history is not only that many US residents finally came to see the kinds of issues at stake in territorial sovereignty and water protection. It's also the forms of solidarity that were made manifest by veterans, by other tribes working in concert with the Lakota and Nakota Standing Rock Sioux. And people from many ranges of life seeing the importance of this social ecological justice issue and coming together across time and space. So perhaps there are some really positive things to be taken from forms of ecological and eco-justice activism and the use of digital platforms. And, and I hope that those conduce to the good, both in those forms of justice seeking and in our classrooms. Professor Christiana Zenner, we leapt in so fast that we didn't even introduce you. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was, it's always awesome to talk to you. So thank you so much for being here, Christy. It was really, really, really terrific. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. I This hour has brought a smile to my face. And in addition, the fact that you are doing what you're doing in the university and the world at this moment is really awesome. And I it's really heartening. And so thank you. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, TwiceOverPodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at TwiceOver1 or email us at 
twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.